So we see, by the late 1910s, the burgeoning department store industry was searching for a new, better way to draw in the wealthy middle-class buyer, eager to exercise their newfound credit. Early attempts at a realistic dress store mannequin were met with skepticism and, at times, revulsion. To counter this fear of their two lifelike mannequins, the Bucyrus Homunculus Trading Company of Bucyrus, Ohio, developed a model that was meant to look almost like a person, but with no hint of life. Eerily smooth skin, glassy dead eyes, and a slack, emotionless stare, the new models were an instant success. And so I learned, while researching this book, that the most famous of these lifeless mannequins, of course, was Calvin Coolidge, a man, or should I say, mannequin? of great contradictions. Silent Cal was a frugal and parsimonious man who nonetheless presided over a period of excess and wealth, an advocate for racial equality and civil rights who refused to enact any sweeping federal reforms, and a sentient block of wood who is the namesake for when roosters are especially horny for new hens. In short, a fascinating subject for a biography. What are you doing in my chair? Um... I swear you take the staff to one screening of Goodwill Hunting and all the janitors think they're professors. Hmm. Calvin Coolidge, our most 30th president. You forgot your... I mean, my new manuscript. Coming to you from Chicago, Illinois, DB Comedy presents The Electables, Presidential Sketch Comedy and History for People Who Can't Afford Hamilton. Today, President 30, Calvin Coolidge. Thank you for enjoying DB Comedy presents The Electables. If you would like to keep supporting us, please consider a donation or tip. Go to fracturedatlas.org, the nonprofit fiscal sponsor of DB Comedy Presents the Electables, and leave us a gift. Your donation is tax-deductible to the fullest extent allowed by law and will be used to keep us on the air and in the algorithms. Thank you! We're having a moment of silence at the beginning of the Coolidge podcast. And there it was. Excellent. Here we are one more time. We're just getting into the Roaring Twenties. Just there are really about to roar. So we get to have some fun here really quickly. Who are our historians? I'm Chelsea. And I'm James. And who are our DB comedians? I'm Paul. I'm Tommy. I'm Sandy. I'm Sylvia. And I'm Patrick. And I'm Joe. Cool. All right. As we were trying to finish the uh, Warren Harding episode, boy, we were trying to get a lot of stuff in there for a guy that sort of ended his term rather early. So we get to a guy who actually gets to have his own term, which is still slightly unusual for vice presidents who ascend to the presidency after their president kicks the bucket. And that is one Calvin Coolidge. Again, a, a, a guy who definitely has this very clear image of taciturnity, but kind of has some odd little side, you know, sort of side tangents about him. And a presidency was it an interesting presidency important presidency we'll find out but the 1920s turned out to be i would argue kind of important in a lot of ways i mean really setting the table for a lot of what happens in the 20th century yeah i mean if we didn't have the 1920s we wouldn't have had the 1930s right Yay. Right. So again, the twenties have this reputation, or sort of what I learned when I was in school was almost in a sense that the twenties was just this mirage until nineteen thirty-three, which is when history really begins. Had something and, to do with the green light. Oh. <laughs> no. um, okay, let's all let's all be sad for that fictitious character who had a hard time. <laughs> 
<laughs> I mean, truly, though. But as we're learning, again, the 20s were a lot more important than we realized, even like what happened just before, even going back to, back to the Spanish flu again, and what that impact was that we memory hold very quickly. And this, you know, and, and so you get to Coolidge, and at the time it was everything was great guns and then there is this literal crash and and he's just this sort of cipher this dry meh dude also because there comes after him in Herbert Hoover someone who we were all kind of villainized in a lot in in, in some ways much more it, it, I got to start at the top here and say I love Calvin Coolidge <laughs> he's got just some of the sickest lines to come out of a president. Uh, some of the best nicknames, definitely. Sphinx of the Potomac, <laughs> Silent Cal. Uh, what does he say? He had the one, uh, he called himself the solemn ass of a president. <laughs> at least he had a sense of humor. Never showed it off, but at least he had one. Well, no, they said he had a very dry sense of humor because I think if you think of the if you think of sort of the 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 stereotypical East Coast ramen, that's the dude you think of. Just quiet Protestant, buttoned up. Uh, yeah, I mean, huh? The, the the there's the famous uh, you know apocryphal story of the journalist who uh, sat down next to him at a dinner and said, I made a bet today that I couldn't get more than two words out of you. Three words. But more than three you words. Lose. And he said, uh, you lose. <laughs> Thing is, that never happened. Uh, but it could have. The, the, story was, the story was related by the president of the Associated Press right before introducing uh, Calvin Coolidge at a talk and he came up and said, well, your president's the president of the Associated Press, now just given you a perfect example of one of those rumors now current in Washington, which is without any foundation. <laughs> See, I, I mean, always heard that his wife told that story. She probably told it a couple of times, too. He, uh, she was she was weirdly, for someone married to someone who was, had such a reputation of uh, saying nothing and being very uncomfortable in, in uh, public settings, she was uh, always the life of the party, went out all the time, brought them around to all kinds of uh, society dinners. Uh, he was asked once <laughs> why he, despite the fact that he was always so uncomfortable in public, why did he go to so many dinner parties? And he said, you gotta eat somewhere. <laughs> well, she is care. Her name is Coolidge. Grace. Oh, her Grace. Name is, oh, Grace. Her Grace. name is Grace. Okay, so, but I did find that apparently this is how they supposedly met. But he was teaching he was a teacher and she was walking down the street and looked up in his room and he, she claimed that he was in his underwear shaving while wearing a hat. Hmm. And she I saw don't... him and couldn't help but laugh. And he noticed and he dressed, apparently he got dressed and ran out to meet her. And later claimed that, well, I was wearing the hat to keep my hair out of my face when I was shaving. Aww. story I heard that he was wearing a hat didn't mention what else that he was wearing but that she was she was working she was a teaching at a college across the street so it wasn't right. the, like she was walking she was like tending the garden or something across the street but yes yeah, yeah. saw him shaving with a hat on thought, so yes that's how they Good morning, class. I'm Miss Oliphant, your new teacher here at Chester Arthur Grammar School. Where's Miss Yellowwood? She became overtired after apple picking and is taking a long rest. I will take attendance. Cal Coolidge. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Quiet, class. Mr. Coolidge, do you think I am amused by young boys imitating ducks? That's a very random question, miss. <laughs> uh, yes, I suppose it is. That's enough, class. Let me continue. Um, Bobby Frost? Here. Your eyes are lovely, dark, and deep, miss. 
let's not stray from the path of learning by diverging into flattery. Benny, Jerry? Here. Why, I'll be fish food if you aren't the prettiest lady in Vermont. Stop it with the half-baked compliments before I scream. So you must be Bernie Sanders there on the left. And darn proud of it. Nobody likes him. That's enough. Let's start with vocabulary. Our lesson today is things one finds on a farm. <laughs> this should be good. What was that, Benny? Uh, uh, this should be hard. Hmm. Oh, I'm not so sure about that. I'll ask you the first question. Name the animal that gives us milk. Gosh, back at Daddy's Dairy, there's brownie and, and sticky buns and buttercup and... But you don't know what species they are? I, I, I do. Uh, it's a, a cow. Class. Class. up. Thank you. All right. The next question is for you, Bobby. What do we call a female pig? What word this is, I think I know. It's baguette. No, it's Bobby. not. It's a sow. <laughs> Thank you. Bernie, can you tell us the name of the tool used to overturn dirt in the field? It's not just one tool, miss. Your average farmer needs education, infrastructure, a social safety net. She means plow. Wow, how can you not know that by now? Class! Class! Shut up! Thank you. Time for our poetry lesson. Gosh, miss, are we done with vocabulary? I think we've had enough. Anyway, here's an old verse that I think has a very inspirational message. <clears throat> A wise old owl sat on an oak. The more he saw, the less he spoke. The less he spoke, the more he heard. Now, why can't we be like that old bird? <laughs> oh, now, isn't that a lovely poem? Miss Oliphant, you want me to be like the owl? Yes, please. Follow the example of the wise old owl. Silence is gold. Does anyone else really want to go into Calvin Coolidge's classroom and just like, so here's a guy who doesn't, is very uncomfortable in public, doesn't particularly like talking, but apparently has just the sharpest sarcastic wit you can imagine. So I'm just imagining, like, he probably assigned a lot of, like, all right, go read, and then you're going to talk about this, because I'm not going to stand up here and talk about it. I was going to say, you're describing all of my graduate school professors, James. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure, right. Well, so the, I, actually, the irony is he got a reputation in college and realized he found his footing by being in debate societies and giving speeches. He had, it was like not the valedictorian, but a similar kind of, he was like in one of his clubs that he was in at college that he was like mm -hmm. the main speaker and they hired him to do speeches. So actually being a public speaker was like the thing that kind of sparked his career. That and was by the Amherst College, correct? Yes. It was yes. And by the way, when he proposed, when, when Cal proposed to Grace, he, his line was, I am going to be married to you. Just a brilliant choice. A master vibe. All of his quotes sound like like an alien impersonating a human has just learned language. Let's talk, if we can, a little bit about the rise of Calvin Coolidge. If anybody noticed, but continue. He never did anything all that outstandingly well. He just kind of. Chelsea, you look like you are hyperventilating at the very thought of the rise of Calvin Coolidge. <laughs> I'm still stuck on Calvin Coolidge as an alien. 
<laughs> there's good evidence. I mean, certainly no social customs. There's another story from him getting inaugurated, but I'll share it later. Yeah, so maybe it was not right. the That's why it's so funny Coolidge. because it's so accurate. Like, I actually might want to look for historic documented evidence of this. <laughs> it was I do the sense of the Calvin Coolidge from the sky. North so he was the um, he was the uh, uh, spark behind this new sci-fi TV show, Resident Alien. I am I was, just an alien impersonating a president. <laughs> I was actually going to ask: was was the rise of Coolidge the one that J.J. Abrams directed, or was that? <laughs> am I mistaken? The Coolidge Strikes Back. Is it Wes Craven? Oh, but how how did he ascend? How did he ascend into politics? I, I'm not really familiar with you. Not into the sky. R&B band. Coolidge in the gang. The movie latest album, Birth of the Coolidge. Calvin in the starches. It was mostly the normal way. You know, you start. You started in uh, lower uh, Republican offices, got up to be uh, Massachusetts state legislator, became the governor of Massachusetts. Uh, what really became his like calling card of fame was the 1919 Boston police strike uh, where you know the, where? The, the police had just for, formed a union and uh, major civil unrest in all the streets and he reacted uh, decisively alongside the uh, the National Guard and all that uh, which really uh, gave him a lot of clout in the national party especially with the beginning of the red scare of the first red scare in the 20s yeah there was extensive accusations that the striking policemen were uh, were communists and there was actually an active communist party in boston and they're like oh this is really cool we'll attach ourselves to this which didn't do the strikers any favors I believe the policemen formed a union, and the re the biggest issue was that they wanted to join up with the American Federation of Labor under Samuel Gompers, and that's when the Boston you know, the mayor of Boston uh, showed a little spine and said, "No, you cannot do that." And so they went on strike. There was both massive unrest, and yeah, you're right. Coolidge stepped in. Called in the National Guard and you know effect and became kind of a de facto dictator of Boston, if you can imagine that. And as you were saying before, James, 1919 was kind of the high watermark for the American labor movement. And so Republicans, being then uh, <laughs> Republicans, being Republicans, if there's been one consistent thing about the party, it's been opposition to organized labor. So Harding, being a non-entity needed uh, and having absolutely no record on organized labor needed an anti-labor vice president to balance them out would you say that's fair i don't know like i guess if you're going to have a guy that's all image and no substance might as well have a guy that's all like all substance and no, all substance no image. And no image. Uh, although also the reason he became vice president has a lot to do with uh, party bosses being lazy uh, because after Harding got, got the nomination after 10 ballots, they uh, put forth uh, Senator Irvine Lenroot from Wisconsin as the vice presidential choice. And then all the bosses left. And then the delegates were like, how about this Calvin Coolidge guy? He's, he's pretty cool. And then they all voted for him. <laughs> This is like the opposite of a smoke-filled room. It's like no one decided. <laughs> Although, uh, you know, to, to be fair to uh, Coolidge's labor record, he when he was the uh, the governor, he did push a lot of bills forth, uh, trying to limit child and child labor and have you know caps to the work week. Although he was one of those if we don't treat the laborers right, they'll kill us all kind of uh, labor reformers instead of... Right. Fear is a powerful tool when you're dealing with the rich. <laughs> Thank you for agreeing to let me disturb your breakfast for this interview, Governor Coolidge. Who are you again? Why, I'm William Allen White, the Sage of Emporia. Where's that? 
It's in Kansas, a mere half-day's automobile drive from the town of Lebanon, the geographic center of the U.S. I guess that's why they call me the voice of Middle America. There's only one? <laughs> that's an excellent point, Governor Coolidge. A land as broad and diverse as the American heartland is home to many different viewpoints. Anyway, I see you're eating a simple breakfast of oatmeal and prunes. Is that your way of paying homage to your Puritan ancestry? Nah. It keeps me regular. I must say, that's rather sage of you, Governor Coolidge. By sharing the culinary habits of your humbler constituents, you can remain more attuned to their concerns. Anyway, I've come to Boston to report on your handling of the crisis. What crisis? Why, the policeman's strike, of course. Oh, that. It's almost over. So you believe Commissioner Curtis's plan to fire the striking officers and hire new policemen will work? You got any better ideas? Quite a rebuff to your critics, who say that Commissioner Curtis, a man whom you have the authority to fire, should submit to the policeman's request to form a union and join the American Federation of Labor. How do you answer the argument that policemen should earn at least as much as unskilled laborers, who on average have a higher hourly wage? Cops shouldn't be getting rich. Very astute, Governor Coolidge. Many Americans share your principled opposition to graft in law enforcement. Do you also share the anxiety that the labor and racial strife tearing America apart in 1919 is the result of Bolshevik agitation? Does the policeman's strike give credence to the Red Scare? Cops should wear blue, not red. Oh, how piffy. I ain't mad at anyone. Oh, of course not. No one would accuse a man of faith like you of pursuing vengeance against the striking officers. It would be unchristian. <laughs> My eyes don't deceive me. Those are National Guard troops marching up Massasoit Street. If I may ask, why did you allow the situation to become so desperate before you appealed for federal assistance? Thought someone else would do it. Well, if that doesn't encapsulate a Jeffersonian philosophy of limited government, I don't know what does. In your own quiet, unassuming way, you're making a stand for law and order, aren't you, Governor Coolidge? Someone has to. Oh, that homespun eloquence. Do you entertain any White House ambitions, Governor Coolidge? Maybe the outhouse first. Oh, how cagey! Uh, James. Yeah? What made the Roaring Twenties roar? Did mm. Calvin Coolidge have anything to do with it, or did he just step out of the way and let the economy, with as little interference as possible, uh, mushroom as it did. You know, uh, so here's a, an anecdote from from uh, Herbert Hoover, of all people, um, yes. who said that, you know, Coolidge was a guy who believed that, you know, out of 10 problems that were coming at him, nine would end up missing him. And <laughs> he kind of went through life with this attitude that I don't really need to change. These things are just going to blow over and they're not really going to affect me. But the result was that when the tenth thing finally did hit him, he was utterly unprepared for it. Um, not, not for nothing, and maybe this would be a decent place to start, but the story of his uh, finding out that he is going to have to ascend the presidency is that they woke him up, his father, a notary public, swore him in in Vermont, and then he went back to bed. At 2.30 in the morning. I mean, yeah. what else are you going to do? Some, some would say that he stayed asleep for the next five years. <laughs> I mean, as Dorothy Parker said, uh, when, when he died, they found out he died. Uh, how do they tell? But the 1924 Republican convention was the first national convention broadcast on mass media. It went off across, on across the radio, and it was probably the dullest, most stately convention ever held. The, um, the only issue, man, the be... networks must have been pissed that they picked a Republican one to broadcast. There was a network, the <laughs> National Broadcasting Corporation. That mm -hmm. was it. Yeah. <laughs> so you kind of swore this that. would be the last time they wasted this much money on a dumb idea. <laughs> oh, exactly. They really learned that lesson. The only conference is like never that. a problem again. <laughs> let us, let us. Who's going to be the vice president? Because obviously he didn't have one. So. 
They came up with a guy. They found a guy named Charles Dawes. I wish they would have found a guy named Hobbs, but that's you know that's just life. <laughs> it had to wait for the comic strips of the eighties, and thankfully it was anyway. And the Republicans and the Democrats, I think they were out in San Francisco, had this frantic convention where one hundred three some odd, some of them very odd ballots. So because it's like you said, Joe, the I forget the name of the candidate, but the Democratic opposition, the Democratic Party was in great disarray at the time. Patrick and it Al was- Smith. Al Smith. We got to talk about Al Smith. <laughs> <laughs> and it would never happen again. Uh, okay. I thank you. Oh, I got that. dropping me because I'm Catholic? Is that what <laughs> <laughs> wanted you to say your catchphrase, and it would never happen again. Ah, yes. We need to get a sign for that. <laughs> <laughs> That's going to be our first T-shirt. <laughs> James, let's talk about Al Smith. Yeah. Well, Al Smith is good enough for radio. <laughs> and So we're talking about the Democratic Party and, and disarray, and... Again, we've we've mentioned this several times the the weird constituency that was the Democratic Party and how it it just was kind of a bizarre group of people that basically, you know, at this point consists of Southern whites, um, you know, kind of this the a traditional post Civil War constituency of, of Democrats. Basically, people are saying Party of Lincoln, hell no, and are voting Democrat just because it's the other party. And then you have, um, I think a perception and probably a, 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 you know, deserved perception that Democrats were friendlier on immigration than Republicans were. Of course, Republicans are now starting to crack down on immigration. So that makes sense. And therefore you have kind of the, the new immigrant groups, especially the new immigrant groups in, in large cities in the East and, and Midwest is becoming aligned with the Democratic party. Um, and, oh, and oh, by the way, there is still one old dude in the Democratic Party that they still can't quite get rid of. Paul's favorite, Chelsea's favorite, William Jennings, Brian, 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 Brian. So when <laughs> does he take the hint? Well, he speaks for this dude named McAdoo. Not to be related, not no relation to Bob McAdoo, great old NBA great from the seventies. Uh, is that Wilson's son-in-law, McAdoo? Uh, I don't Sylvia, know. So. Sylvia, he he takes the hints in so. July nineteen twenty-five when he dies. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> is, no, yes. This, he's from California. Yes, that is, this that is William, William Jennings, William William G. McAdoo of California. Yes, he is. As a matter of fact, it in is California. And also, Patrick, I just want to say, I don't think of him as dying so much as I think of him as being no longer fit enough to survive because <laughs> I stand on Darrow's side. <laughs> he, he, doesn't, he doesn't so much die as he fails his run for continued to live. He, yeah, I would say he evolves into a dead person. <laughs> God wanted him dead and he's not going to resist God's will. Y'all, I can't wait for our Perennial Losers episode. It is going to be the best of all of the episodes okay <laughs> so I'm, I'm trying to f- yeah this is a good one but wait for that one guys oh yeah that's, so that's so, right, the, audience. Okay. so we, the election we've been handling william jennings bryant with kid club until right. now so i'm trying Just to you f- wait i'm reading an account of the 1924 democratic party convention it's a it's, shit di- it's difficult it's a to tell if there were fire. 100 ballots or 200 ballots why yeah it's a dumpster fire. Because there's one, there's one paragraph where they said there were a hundred ballots, and neither Smith nor da- nor McAdoo could get enough. And then there's another paragraph that begins for the next one hundred ballots, the longest deadlock at any major party convention in U.S. history. My math is two hundred. I don't know. Uh, okay, it says hundred three ballots. It took hundred three ballots before they got John W. Davis. So they did the count 103 times before they finally said, screw it, let's go with Davis. The ever popular, popular, it's too hard to pick between these two guys. Let's just pick the third guy. Pick this guy. Yeah, it is 100% a papal conclave. But their vice president, they found a governor of Nebraska whose last name was Brian, Mm. vice president. (laughs) Wow. Because it's working on brand so well before. It's like running a guy named Ryan in Illinois. Ryan, Ryan. No, it's eerie. Mm-hmm. Madness, madness, madness. And so 
what does what does Coolidge do? Comes up with a really awesome slogan. Keep cool with Coolidge. Yeah. Oh, he is a jazz age president. There All you right. go. I was gonna say I, I so it looks well, like I'm he sure. it looks like he also contracted an advertising executive to lead his messaging campaign, which sounds like something you would say in 2022 and not 1922. See, that's 1924. That, that's what really happened there because the ad agents came up with "Keep Cool with Coolidge." I'm sure yeah. Coolidge's uh, winning slogan was "Please vote for Calvin Coolidge." <laughs> I am running for president. Calvin Coolidge, a choice that will appear on the ballot. <laughs> Please vote. <laughs> um, oh boy. I mean, and he was a small t- you know he was he was born in a small town as the song goes his father was a grocer he had this clear reputation which in his case i think was real of being of being very thrifty and the roaring 20s started to roar and lord knows warren harding did but to some extent uh coolidge comes in and at least in dc decides to kind of keep the again keep a keep a steady hand and kind of let everything else a lot of other stuff explode around him and he's just there to kind of guide things a little bit it should be said that he didn't really do anything to inhibit the investigation of the harding scandals that's why it didn't stick to him there was no one he could pardon anyways since harding was dead so Mm -hmm. Also, let's take a moment to appreciate that his first name is actually John. So he's John Calvin. Like, <laughs> that's pretty That cool. was just destiny. So was his son. And so was his father. So cool. <laughs> well, why, you know, he's very thrifty. Why spend money on a new name? The old one works great. Oh, my god! He did reduce. I mean, I guess uh, if you're Calvinist, well, mm-hmm. your exactly. name's going to be John Calvin. Mm-hmm. Am I am I wrong in thinking though that our deficit decreased under Calvin under? Coolidge? Oh yeah, he ran a surplus. Mm-hmm. No, he was he was a deficit. He was definitely a deficit hog. And I guess you know, James, we started this again. This was a discussion we had with with uh, Harding as well as to which president sort of more embodies the spirit of the Roaring Twenties and. Uh, you know, I think attitudinally and behaviorally, we could probably say Harding did. Yet, there were a lot of aspects of the 20s that started to pop that it wasn't FDR that started speaking to the country via radio monthly. It was Coolidge. It wasn't, you know, Teddy Roosevelt that was maybe the first feature president on film. It was... Calvin Coolidge. Um, it should be said, just for the source of clarification, Teddy did make a silence. Okay. Calvin made a talkie, a <laughs> film speech silent. with sound, though. No, he did make a he did make a sound <laughs> film before the jazz singer was released. Right. Yeah. He he celebrated, and I how I forgot about this guy in the 1920s. Uh, he was one of the first people to celebrate Charles Lindbergh when Lindbergh flew across the Atlantic and kind of made, you know, helped that hagiography. And of course, he allowed the stock market to rise and rise and rise. So, Tommy, how many of uh, Charles Lindbergh's wives did Calvin Coolidge meet, if any? <laughs> now that I don't know, I don't believe he ever brought the uh, the two German sisters back stateside. So I'm guessing just the one. But you know, it's a, hey, who knows? And being a good New England Calvinist, even if he had met all three wives at once, Calvin Coolidge wouldn't have said much about anything. Right. <laughs> How nice um, to meet your wives. <laughs> do you have a favorite? Yeah. It's not that he's not here to judge. It's just that he won't tell you what he's judged. <laughs> He'll keep that to himself. You know, we haven't we haven't really talked about prohibition a whole lot, which is obviously something that you know is kind of a a very important part of this era. Um, I, I guess I, I've read that that Coolidge was vaguely opposed to prohibition, which kind of surprises me given his background. Um, but uh, you know, again, he. He clearly, if he was opposed to it, he wasn't 
vocally opposed to it, although he didn't seem to be vocally opposed he just really or in anything. Regulation. Well, and also did. don't forget, he's coming off the, you know, he becomes president in the wake of lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of scandals. Some, some of which we, as we discussed in the previous episode, uh, Warren Harding, you know, some of it erupting sort of, I think, after Harding passed, but because the scandals were clearly from the Harding administration, this taciturn East Coast dude there to actually calm things down, actually try to bring a sense of normalcy, and actually sort of trying to lay, sort of make, you know, straighten things out in the White House, um, especially because of all the drinking that was clearly going on in the Harding administration. well, and that's what I was going to ask. If he was opposed, did he flout it like the Harding, like Harding and the other Ohio gang? Not or was he all. vaguely no. opposed to no. it? No, yeah, no, no he was, he a con- was, he was pers- a, personally he was a opposed, but did not serve alcohol at White House functions. So he was not I'm, openly flouting of it. I might as well drop in that other story, which was that uh, after he is told that he's going to be president, someone comes by you know, to wish him well goes to his footlocker, gets out a thing of whiskey, pours them, you know, two, gives them a glass of whiskey. They each have one. They cheers. Someone else shows up for the same reason, and he pours another two glasses, and he says, Will already had his. (laughs) I don't think it was Will. I'm making up the name, but (laughs) it feels right. Yeah, no, but he was, uh, and he he did this also when he was in uh, governor of Massachusetts. Uh, Despite any personal opposition to prohibition, he did everything he could to enforce it. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a, a bill came up in Massachusetts that would have allowed uh, the sale of, beer, of 2.75 beer and wine that he vetoed saying, you know, whatever uh, opinions don't match the Constitution. Were, would you say okay, one, would you say that uh, Lindbergh, would the Coolidge's politics were anyway in line with America's most popular man, Lindbergh's, who would of course turn out to be a Woo-hoo. polygamous fascist. Radbadamus anti-Semite. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I don't, I don't know to how much, to what extent Lindbergh's politics were really known at the point of when he made the transatlantic flight. Certainly, I don't think that's what he was famous for at that point. Was you know, he was famous because he did the thing. And then when he did the thing, then people were like, well, maybe this guy has other things to say. And then it turned out what he had to say was was not great. They're like, um, ah, keep your mouth shut. Yeah, what he had to say is still circulating on Reddit. So yikes. isn't that just the way? Yep. <laughs> Coolidge is, is is the anti-authoritarian. I mean, he's he's probably the closest thing to a true libertarian as president we've ever had in terms of. He has a very narrow view of federal power. He has a very narrow view of the role of the federal government in terms of influencing the economy, in terms of regulating any kind of social behavior. And partly that might just have been because he didn't really care to do a whole lot. And maybe ultimately it was just because he just didn't care. Well, like, I, I think I would, I would disagree with that because, uh, I mean, it, it's true that he did uh, famously say that the – the government can't do anything about the economy is, is his main belief. But uh, I mean, as, as a governor, he did a lot to, uh, you know, strengthen worker representation, get uh, put on economic controls during the war and try to make, you know, make conditions safer and easier for workers that he didn't do as governor, as, as, that he didn't do as president because he just believed that the federal government shouldn't be involved in any of that. So I, I, don't do think wanna... he, I don't think it's he didn't care. He just didn't believe that the federal government should have anything to do with uh, trade. It's probably also helpful that he's the first president that we've hit in a long time that apparently does not have a patron, does not have a power broker, does not have some powerful somebody, you know, financier or machine you know political machine operator behind him i do want to put in a word real quick to differentiate him from Lindbergh. he did speak in favor of anti-lynching laws he never passed a federal one but he did try to did sign the indian citizenship act so at least he wasn't 
If he was a racist, he was not as terrible of one as Lindbergh. Well, and and I will say, like, he spoke in favor of anti-lynching legislation, but it wasn't necessarily his fault that it didn't pass, right? That is a a congressional issue, mostly because of Southern Democrats and the filibuster. And that's never been a problem. Yeah, he he was was probably as vocal about uh, civil rights as one could expect a president in the 20s to be. But we did give we did give DC some credit for signing the Indian Citizenship Act in 1924. I just want to comment on the irony of granting the first Americans, the first nations, the right to vote in the country we stole from them, and it had roughly the uh, impact of you know like the 14th through the 16th amendments. In that, yes, the federal government gave you. It would not object if you voted. You've got the right to vote, but enforcement of that right was left in the hands of the individual states who could put all kinds of restrictions on it. And it was never a problem again. But by the time we get to the end of the 1920 of 1929, not so good. And he took a big hit of his reputation immediately after his presidency and also the fact that he died in 1933. So he kind of created this reputation of really like, yeah, good at the time, but ultimately really bad because that's why, uh, you know, he's one of the reasons the Great Depression happened. So James? Oh, I was going to say just like my first James Chelsea, fair or, I'm sorry. (laughs) What? Change seems like a good idea at the time. <laughs> but caused a great depression. <laughs> Maybe for him. Oh, fair enough. I've, I've met I've met that boyfriend next to Chelsea. Um, and uh, anyway, or less well, John Mark. Yeah. Anyway. Anyway. Um, James Chelsea. Is it fair? to kind of blame or you know point a finger at one person like yes the president has enormous power to shape economic policy and domestic policy and but he also has like hundreds of advisors who probably know should know more than him on certain issues and you know this is one of the things that I in my own like professional practice as a historian, I've always really struggled with this, right? How much is the the problem or the issue the result of one human person, usually a man? But like, is it is it just this one man? I think it's really hard. Or is it this like series of actions um, in just the context of the times? And uh, we're talking about economic events, you know, econ economies rise and fall and you know sometimes regardless of who's in presence things go in cycles and you really can't blame the president for a boom or a bust necessarily they can do things to mitigate it they can make policies but essentially i mean the economy is its own wheel it'll great depression calvin coolidge fair you know i i think it fair from the perspective of if you put a modern politician getting modern economic advice in Calvin Coolidge's shoes, his economic advisors would have probably been looking at some of the things that were happening, especially in the banking sector and said, something bad's coming down the pipe and maybe we should do some stuff to try to uh, make this a little bit less bad. Um, and, pro- and, you know, I think, so I think fair-ish, fair from the perspective of, yes, Coolidge's extraordinarily laissez-faire policy let this bubble create itself and then, um, you know, burst uncontrained, you know, uncontrolled and unconstrained. And then when it burst, um, you know, and at, at this point we're into Hoover, but basically not a lot of willingness to do stuff about it. I also think that Coolidge's picks for Fed governorships um, end up really being poor, uh, and but uh, probably some of that goes back to Harding too. That the people who were running the Fed in the late 1920s were rubes and didn't know what the hell they were doing, and didn't understand that. Oh, hey, when the banking crisis hits, that's a really bad time to raise interest rates. 
and 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 that the the damage that that did, you know, you you have a banking system that's teetering on the point of collapse. That's that's in a state of that's in this horrible liquidity trap with all these loans going bad and banks being scared to lend to other banks. And then the Federal Reserve, the lender of last resort, says, "Yeah, we're going to raise interest rates," and that just shoves the whole. It's like. It's like you're holding on to the guy who's dangling over the cliff and you're trying to, he thinks you're going to pull him up and instead you whip out a machete and cut his wrist off. Yeah, just let him go. Just it's down he goes. Gruber move. Yeah. Well, and I think, I, one of the things that it, us, oh, uh, sorry, Patrick. Uh, also, incidentally, uh, Coolidge is responsible for us getting Hoover in the first place since he's the one who appointed him uh, as the commissioner over the 1927 flood which is what Hoover used to really gain his uh, his name. Again, when we were talking in the Harding episode of who maybe Harding is sort of the exemplar of the jazz age in, in a symbolic way, here's another perhaps argument that Coolidge was Coolidge dies January 1933. He does not live long enough to see FDR become president and therefore where FDR literally starts this new epoch and Coolidge doesn't even, isn't even around to see that happen. He would have died as soon as anything had happened anyway. I'm assuming like, ah. then that they they repealed prohibition just because that funeral was so long and boring, or <laughs> <laughs> we have to say something. And if I could throw one more thing at, and this just struck me because up until the, right about now, all of the presidents we've talked about really are at a distance. History in the clearest sense. Like we have to read about them because we weren't there. We don't know anybody that was there. We have to rely on what other people have said and written and, and written and created art about. Now that we start to get to Hoover and FDR and the depression, now we begin, at least a few of us here, at least I'll speak for myself as well. Now we're going to begin reading and experience or talking about events that we have familial if not direct history of my parents were depression babies born in 1922 and 1924 they they were shaped by things that happened really again starting with hoover on and Maybe that's where we start to look at even someone like Coolidge and go, well, bad things happened in my family. Like times were hard and somebody sure as hell should be blamed. I, I didn't know we were supposed to chime in with that because I got a lot to say about the Great War, but let's not go back. <laughs> no, it really messed up a branch of the family pretty permanently. Well, Neither here nor there. But you see what I'm saying, though. I mean, yeah. it's, it's, I mean, we're again. Hi, suddenly, history isn't going to be so far out. History is in our, you know, and you in know, so, Sylvia. Sylvia just gave me the stink eye. Well, not to you, but I have some activity that I'm trying to keep an eye on here. So it wasn't <laughs> you, Joe. Oh, okay. So that was your cat. I see. Mm -hmm. So maybe this. So I guess this may be something that we all start to kind of really look at and be aware of, and or maybe not. I don't know. Maybe it's just me being ridiculously profound because we're getting to the end of a conversation here. <laughs> no, I think that's you know one of the things that I'm I'm encountering a lot in my job. Um, you know running digital archives uh, initiatives here in Michigan. Um, one of the things I run into a lot ever, especially since COVID, are the people who are looking for digital archiving skills and, and oral history skills. And it's because of exactly what you're saying, Joe, right? People I think are stuck at home and they're realizing that their families are this wealth of amazing perspective 
and they want to record and save and preserve those memories and those stories while we still can. Um, and I, I see it at least once a week. I have someone reach out to me, you know, do you guys run a digital archiving course? Well, no, but here are other people who do. Um, so it's, I, yeah, I think you're, you're definitely hitting on something. Anyone else opine on that? Well, we will get to, I think, and you can, we'll definitely pull for your stories, Tommy. I do think that once we get into our own personal memories, I think mm -hmm. it'll surely add to these discussions. Um, so we won't just be grabbing Wikipedia for right. factoids that we, that we provide. Some, maybe even bring in an extra voice or two that we can. Yeah, you, know. you get you get a pull Wikipedia from my cold dead hand, Sandy. <laughs> <laughs> Shall we wrap up, Mr. Coolidge? Because I think when we get to Herbert Hoover, ooh, speaking of getting the knives out, <laughs> deservedly or not. One last bone that we can cut and add, add this to the stuff, the names that we had for Coolidge at the beginning of this. Mm -hmm. One of my favorite descriptions of Coolidge, and you'll like this, Paul, is from Alice Roosevelt Longworth. Oh. You know this Being one, Paul? That he looks like he was weaned on a pickle. <laughs> I love her. While it, while <laughs> while on a porch. So let's throw right. <laughs> So again, more porches. Oh, I think we should end on that. Yeah. And so we <laughs> shall. Until Herbert Hoover. DB Comedy presents The Electables. This episode's sketches were written, produced, and performed by Gina Pocola, Sandy Baikowski, Joseph Fedorko, Ramona Joy, Sylvia Mann, Paul Moulton, Patrick J. Riley, and Tommy Spears. Original music written and performed by Throop McClurg. Audio production by Joseph Fedorko. Sound effects procured at freesound.org. Contributions to DB Comedy are graciously accepted by going to the DB Comedy donation page at fracturedatlas.org, the nonprofit fiscal sponsor of DB Comedy. Donations are tax-deductible to the fullest extent allowed by law. For more information on DB Comedy and the Electables, visit DB Comedy's host page on Simplecast.com. Follow us on Facebook at DB Comedy or Democracy Burlesque. Join us on the Trident Network and listen to us on World Perspectives Radio Chicago on TuneIn.com and Hard Lens Media. Thanks for listening. Thanks for downloading. Don't forget to subscribe and don't forget to like.